This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Morning. Uh, my name is Rob Overton. It's actually Mark Nato, um, and today I'll be uh, reading from Matthew 5, 38 through 48, which Brother Rob has uh, already done so. You can find that on page 810 in your pew Bibles, Matthew 5, 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Hey, good morning. Hey, with that tenderness, let me just open up in prayer for you. Uh, I would guess as we've been praying and you've been asked to pray for forgiveness, you've been asked to pray to trust God with your pain, you've been asked to ask God to do something in the world around us. Um, There is a ton of pain around us, and so it's appropriate that our hearts are stirred. So let me just ask God to meet us now as we jump into this text. Father, thank you that you are trustworthy and you are good, and that the one who spoke this command, your son, um, sought justice through his own self-sacrifice on the cross. You actually made a way for all the wrongs to be made right through your own death. Would that be like a grounding, orienting place for us as we start? Would it not just be sentimentality? Would it not be a sense of duty? Would it not be even just a desire for surface peace? Would it be rooted in what you've done for us that we take this angst and this sadness and this fear and this anger and this hurt and this woundedness and this confusion? Could we ground it there on the Son of God who died in our place? We already sang that you paid it all that you're a shield about us, that you are our refuge. So God, would those realities now come to play to give some surface area for us to rest these tensions and these pains and these questions on? And then God, would you do a work in us through, through your Spirit supernaturally where we actually want this to be true, where we want to live like this, where um, the call to the kingdom ethic of self-denial 
would actually not just be appealing as a neat way to live, but it would be life-giving. We've said that this is not a sermon about good advice. It's good news. So would you help us like lean into the good news of this, of how, how this kind of thing could actually be good, even though maybe it's scary for a lot of us. I want to pray to you for those who are in particular acute moments of conflict and pain, who feel harmed and There's people in our body who are in abusive situations right now. Holy Spirit, would you interpret for them this text? Would you apply it to their hearts in particular ways? Would you give me skill, but also would you do more than I can do? Would you help them hang on to your heart in this passage? And again, finding its ultimate hope in what you've done for us. So I just pray that you would help us with that. In, In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, hey, if we haven't met, I'm Chris. Um, no excuse to go along because the sermon's been preached twice already. So let me try to uh, wrap it here. Let me kind of orient you a little bit. We're going to spend about three weeks around this topic. Today, we're going to take the first half of that passage talking about retaliation. Next week, we'll jump into that love of enemy. So if you can go like, how do we stop some of the pain? and How do we move positively towards some of the pain? And then we're just going to spend a week on forgiveness and letting go of bitterness, and asking for God to to heal us. I don't think I have to do a whole lot of convincing to tell you this is relevant to your life. I don't need a lot of jokes or funny stories. Like, this is where you live your life. This is your childhood. It's your adulting. It's the way you relate to your parents. It's the way you do jobs. It's the way you do church. It's the way you do intimate relationships. There's lots and lots and lots of pain, of hurt, and millions of opportunities to apply this text. So, so I wanted to stop for a second and say, all right, the, the cultural moment we're in gives us a context that makes this particularly applicable. But also the context of the Sermon on the Mount makes it really applicable. This is Jesus talking about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And God actually came into our world to reconcile us to himself. So start with all your tensions and all your pains and all your questions and all your resistance going, man, I don't want this to go too far because this passage has been used to like abuse people. It's been used to tell people to stay in abusive situations. And so I feel a ton of tension because I believe this is really good news. I also know that our culture pushes so hard against this and pushes in front of you all the time your rights that this is so disorienting. And I feel like some embarrassment. I feel a real challenge as a pastor that the call to self-denial that Jesus actually says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to die to yourself. That just feels so foreign to us. And you would surely give assent to it. You would say, yeah, yeah, I know it's in the scriptures. But when it comes to how you live Monday, with how you relate to your boss, what you do with your kids, this constant biblical theme of self-denial feels really far away from us if we're honest. And I don't mean to indict you with that, but that's, that's kind of the culture we live in. So I feel as I step up here like this, encouragement to lean in, but also some like embarrassment that as part of pastoring in kind of America in 21st century, this has not been a common theme for you. We've given you more like tips for your budgets and how to do kind things and how to have great memories and how to increase your joy, but we haven't taught you how to die to yourself. So a passage like this just feels really strange. It feels like, well, how how could this be good news? Because I've been told my whole life, every single day, all day long, the best way to be happy is to indulge all of my desires. In fact, our world would say to us, whatever you think yourself needs to be happy, you should have and damn anybody who would get in your way. 
Like literally, damn anybody who would get in your way. That's the apostate. That's the danger. That's the ones who we should distance ourselves from. Anybody who says to you, you shouldn't give full vent to all of your desires and pleasures, you should see as a dangerous person and you should push away from. Friends, you hear that all day long and you've rehearsed it. You've sung it. You've, you've got rhyming things from you, you. You indulge that idea all day long. So I have that tension in my heart. I also have the tension of like, People have been hurt and abused, and I'm so desperate for our church to be the kind of place that stands next to victims, those who've been marginalized, both in our culture and in our church and in our relationships. And so I have a a strong desire for those of you who are in really painful situations not to misapply this to your heart. So so if I could just name, like I've got this big kind of cultural thing going on in my soul and a longing that you would both want it to be true, but you would also be able to apply it to the particulars of your life when it comes to those dicey, difficult situations. Like, I just feel, not like in a jam, it just feels really challenging, if I could be honest. So I've just been praying for you all week that God would minister to your soul wherever you find yourself. There are those in our body who are in really dangerous situations right now. Hear me as your pastor. We care about you. We want to help you get out of those situations. You do not have to stay in places where your life is being threatened where you're in danger, we want to help you. Please hear me say that. And I mean that with all my heart. Period. Most of us are not in that situation. Most of us are claiming our rights in places that are very thin, that it's just inconvenient. It's not abusive, actually. It's just this space where you're being challenged with what you want and what somebody else has and how those two things conflict. So I don't think as a culture our problem is actually that we've over-applied this passage on the whole. It has been over-applied in really dangerous ways. I want to own that. I want to apologize for that. I want us to move past that. But could I say to the majority of us, your problem has not been that you've sought to follow this so particularly that now you're in an abusive situation. In fact, normally what's happened is you've so resisted this, you don't know how to do relationships in the name of Jesus. So a passage like this just seems really strange, and beyond strange, it actually seems dangerous. So, so I want to just engage the text like that. I want to walk through, like, what was the original command Jesus is dealing with, right? Because remember the pattern here is Jesus is not saying, the heck with the law. He's saying, the law is good. I came to fulfill it. So he says, you've heard it said, this is what God's word has for you. Let me actually deepen that. And then let me show you what it looks like to live in light of it, right? So there's three phases. What was the original call in God's law? How does Jesus deepen that? And then what does it look like for us to actually apply that both for their situation and for ours? I just want that to be our simple outline. What was said in the Old Testament, how does Jesus deepen that? Then how on earth could that actually be good news? That's the the pathway that I want to go down. And so if you go with me in verse 38, he says this. You've heard that it was said, right? This is that formula. He's in the middle of these six illustrations. This is number five. You've heard it said from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now let me ask you, when you hear someone say that, what's the look on their face? I would guess it's angry, or at least pretty intense. But this passage was actually given in the Old Testament as a call to protect, as a call to to honor, as a call to actually human dignity, not towards vengeance. So it's quoted three times in the Old Testament. We'll look at just two of them. If you have your Bible, flip over to Exodus chapter 21. Let me just show you this text in context. So this is Exodus chapter 21. 
He starts around verse 22, and he basically says if two guys are fighting and in the middle of their fight, they bump into a pregnant lady and she gives premature birth, something has to be done about that is basically what he's saying. And if the the baby comes out okay, then there's some sort of fine that needs to be paid because of the cost to that. That would be really challenging. That would be really emotionally jarring. That would be really abusive in that sense. So she matters. The baby matters. Here the Bible is for women and for children, right? It's to protect them. And then it says, if there was harm done in verse 23, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The context is actually one of justice. Hey, if you hurt somebody, it's not okay just to keep moving. You have to stop and do something about that. And it's actually brought into the community rather than individuals seeking this. This is code given to judges and to civic leaders to say it's your job to make sure that children and women are protected. And if somebody does something to somebody, then retribution has to be paid. It has to be equal. It doesn't matter if it was an accident or not. You have to do something for the sake of justice. And if we flipped over just one more book to Leviticus, or actually, yeah, in Leviticus chapter 24, you see the same passage there, the same idea. But here it actually is applied to the sojourner and the foreigner. Same idea. And he says, hey, I don't care if this person is a native Jew, if it's one of your countrymen, somebody that you like, or if it's a foreigner, a stranger, maybe even somebody you would call an enemy. Justice is justice. If there's been harm, it has to be paid. So the principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth is not go get what you're owed. It is protective. Right? So there's three things here. God's heart is to protect people. That's the first idea. It also protects against over-retaliation or disproportionate retaliation. You can't take two eyes. You can't take five teeth. You have to be equal and fair. And then it is given to the magistrates or to the judges or to the civic leaders not to be taken into individuals' hands. So you can see how that command was a really healthy, good command in the Old Testament. But like everything else God gives us, it often gets distorted and twisted. And people were using it to say, demand your rights. If someone hurts you, you should go after them. And scholars would say to us, by the time Jesus is actually speaking, this has moved from physical retaliation to fines and fees and lawsuits. So it's saying you you should go sue that person if they've hurt you is the way that it's being used in that space, which makes sense of the way Jesus deepens it, right? So the original call was actually to protect. It was to avoid disproportionate retaliation, and it was to past the sense of justice from just you personally in a back alley taking somebody down and giving blow to blow. It was to hand over the sense of justice to the magistrate. It's actually a beautiful code. Even the look on our faces when we say it normally has a snarl to it. This would have been a life-giving command. Even just think in that culture, man, to protect women, to protect children, aliens, sojourners. This is a provocative, beautiful protection. Jesus said, you've heard that. It's being twisted, though. So now I say to you, don't resist the one term of don't sue somebody or don't. So what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, I know this law was given to protect, but you don't actually have to demand your rights. You should seek to protect other people. You should seek to care for them. But when it comes to you, you're not just left to demand your own rights and actually see that what you're owed comes back to you. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. And we should just say, what, what does that even mean? Like, surely God wants us to resist evil. And we would say, of course, 
Of course, God is after resisting evil, right? Jesus himself resists evil, right? He resists Satan in the wilderness. He resists the Pharisees and the scribes. He resists the evil in the world around us through his own death and resurrection. Jesus spends his entire ministry resisting evil. So it doesn't mean just let evil go. What he's saying is you don't have to take your legal action to get what you're deserved in the kingdom of God. Now, there's a ton of things that have to be true for that statement to make any sense at all, but that's essentially what he's saying. You don't have to demand justice for yourself. There's something deeper and more beautiful because the principle of retribution or retaliation is you take a tooth and I'll take a tooth and then we're even, but it never actually works like that. Think about every like crime drama you've seen of the rival gangs. Somebody shoots somebody and the guy goes and shoots somebody. It never stops there. It's always more and more. We have a way of giving a point system where what you do to me is worth more points on the loss column than what I do to you. We just skew it. So the exact same words like in a transcript, if you say them to me, it is incredibly offensive. If I say them to you, it's understandable because I had a bad day. So if that's the way we relate as people, you can see the law of retribution would never bring about some sort of unity or some sort of peace. So I thought about an illustration for you. This is kind of a a jagged, jangly illustration, but it's like true to my life. Let me actually share it with you. And it's not one that I look amazing. It's one where I look like a fool, which I think are some of the best illustrations pastors can use. But there was a moment where I felt like God's mercy was in it, even though it was really, really sideways. So here's a story. Our first house in Wichita, we remodeled our kitchen. We paid $78,000 for our house. The kitchen was about the size of a postage stamp, trying to knock out a wall and kind of create just a little bit more space. Didn't have a ton of money, so we talked to a friend of a friend who had a carpenter who they knew who said, hey, they could do it on the cheap and they would get us some cabinets. I knew that we were not paying for custom matching cabinets to our existing cabinets. I totally knew that. And I said, hey, man, just get as close as you can. We're going to paint them anyway. Get the door styles kind of near. Do the best you can. We're, we're excited just to have more space in our kitchen. Well, the guy makes the purchase. I pay for half of the materials up front. He drops them off in our driveway and then disappears for like a month. Well, we've already gutted our kitchen, so our stove is in our dining room. Our refrigerator is in our living room. We have plywood by the sink, and we just don't have a functioning kitchen for like, for like a month. So I'm calling the dude, no answer. Calling the dude, no answer. Call the dude, call the friend of the friend, who, no, and nobody knows. Well, the guy's just like left town. So I do what any reasonable person would do. I call another contractor thinking, dang, I'm out the money I paid for half of these cabinets, and this guy's just skipped town. Lesson learned on me. I'll actually now just take care of it. I'll move forward. As soon as I contract with somebody else and he installs the new cabinets, the first contractor shows back up. Hey, man, I'm so sorry. I had a family emergency. I've been gone for a month. I'm ready now to finish the job. Kind of an awkward moment of like, uh, well, I didn't hear from you for a month. And so we pulled this other dude in and had him make some cabinets. And I actually get as close as you could, but these were like the wrong size. <laughs> they weren't even just like the wrong door faces. They were actually the wrong measurements. The wrong, I thought this is the best you could do. It wasn't going to work. And, and you just disappeared, man. And he's like, well, my dad was really sick. And I'm like, hey, I get that, but you could at least return my phone call. This is my drive where we're having this interaction. Well, the friend of a friend goes to my church. This guy knows that I'm a pastor. All right. So we're having this conversation now of how do we make this thing right? And in my mind, like I am the offended party. It's been a month of eating out of my living room and working the fridge in the different space. Like the whole thing is chaos. I was offended. In his mind, like I am a terrible person. I've lied to him. I've cheated him out of money because he can't return these cabinets. 
in my mind, he's not a very good contractor. He ordered the wrong thing. It's not on me. And in his mind, I am this duplicitous demon who claims to be a pastor and yet is hosing him for $100. This is the driveway exchange that we have. So it starts to ratchet up, man. So I go to, well, you should have called. He's like, well, I couldn't call. Well, I was out of service. But yeah, but you could at least send an email or something. I mean, it just goes up, 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 up. So we are escalating huge in my driveway. He finally gets to the place where he begins to say, I can't even believe you would call yourself a Christian and behave like this. And I like lost it. It was like, it was just too much, right? So I pull out my checkbook and I said, dude, you're not going to hose me. I probably use a different word and insult me and say that I'm not a Christian for this. What do you want? How much is it going to take to make this thing right so that you know, like I did everything I could do, right? So I pull out my checkbook and I wish I could told you like I prayed and said, oh, brother, let me just bless you. But it was like with this look on my face of like, no way, dude, you're not going to hose me and accuse me. I'm going to now write a letter. I'm going to write a check and I'm going to actually pay you whatever you want so you feel terrible. <laughs> and, and it worked, actually. So I pull out my checkbook and I said, man, what's it going to take? What do you want? You want the rest of the cabinets? You want time? You want time and materials? How much time do you spend on this? You want, I'll double that time. Like, right? So I write this check for more than what I owed him. And he begins to backpedal, right? He begins, oh, man, you don't have to do that. Like, hey, dude, no, you, man, you called me out. Say I'm not a follower of Jesus. My reputation really matters. You know my friend. Man, I want you to be able to come to our church one day. He, here's the check for more than I owe you. Okay, it's a jagged illustration because if you were seeing that moment, you might be like, I don't know if I want that guy to be my pastor. Like, it was this intense moment. I don't think, like, I said things to disqualify me from ministry, but, but in my heart, man, I was in this livid, livid space. But what was amazing to me as I remember this story was the moment that I stopped saying, you owe me, and I said, let me pay the difference plus, it stopped the entire conversation. And again, it was not smooth, not something to be emulated, but I remember it happening. I remember actually being surprised. I remember, that, I remember thinking, I'm going to write this check and he's going to do something else, but it actually diffused the whole situation. Now, the challenging thing was we still had all these cabinets. So I don't like, we have new cabinets in. I've got this whole thing of cabinets. So we took some of them to the church. Is what you do with all your leftover stuff you don't want. You just drop it off at the church. We have a whole room back here where we've done that here. So our welcome desk and our youth ministry was one of my old cabinets. The sound and AV cabinet was one of my old cabinets. But I'm left with a couple of doors. And we had these doors for like years. And every time I would see a man, I would just get furious. And I don't get angry very often, but in that moment, like where I feel like I really tried to serve this dude, and he again hosed me, I was like this space where I just couldn't let it go. And so one night, actually, Ada and I drive off into like the countryside, find this barrel in this park, and we have this burning of the doors of bitterness ceremony, <laughs> where we just threw these doors in, kind of as offering and sacrifice to move to move forward. Okay, I tell you all that story both so that you would like get a picture into my weirdness, but also so you would go, here's a one time in my life, or maybe there's been two or three more where I experienced kind of what this passage is saying. I felt like I had a right, but the crazy thing is, so did he. And maybe you pretend if you're a contractor or you're a homeowner, you probably want to side with either one of us, right? So there's probably a view you have to this situation, but, but I'm going after what I'm owed, what I'm deserved. And it took me stopping and saying, all right, you know what? The heck with that. It's not worth it. What do you want to make this thing Right. Okay. A jagged, jangly illustration. But I think that's what Jesus is saying because retribution never brings about peace. It's never that if you do something and then they do something, it just stops there. It always increases. So what Jesus is actually calling us to is to own both sides of the resolution equation. Normally what happens is there's an offense 
And then something happens to make it right, and that equals peace. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to own both sides. You own the offense, and you own what makes it right so there can be peace. And it's super complicated, so he gives four illustrations. He says, after he says, don't resist this evil one. But if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, and commentators go crazy over what kind of slap this must have been. At first, I giggled thinking this is really ridiculous. But what they're trying to argue is this is an insulting slap, not a fight. So to face somebody and for them to slap your right cheek means they either backhanded you or in an ancient world without sanitation, you would do something with your left hand that you would never do with your right hand. Right? You would eat with your right hand and you would never use your left hand for that. So to slap somebody on their right side, either you backhand them or you use your potty hand to strike them. Either one of those is like this dehumanizing insult. What he's saying is, hey, when you are insulted, rather than returning that insult, would you stand there and take the other side of the equation? Would you both receive the offense and the payment for that offense when you get insulted? It says, and if someone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. So we don't wear tunics. This is not really the thing that we're into. But in this ancient world, you had basically these two garments, your tunic and your cloak. One is an outer garment. One's an inner garment. The the inner garment was actually protected by law. Like it was illegal to keep a man's inner garment overnight because it was this sacred thing. It was probably also his pajamas. So to take both of those was to leave him naked and exposed. That's a vivid image. What he's saying now, if somebody wants to sue you, they think they have legal rights to your outer garments. That's the first part of the equation. Go ahead and give them the second part of the equation as well. Give them more than they ask because that breaks the cycle of retribution. He says, third illustration, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So in that ancient world under Roman occupation, it was a law that at any point a Roman soldier could pull a citizen off the street and could make him carry his gear for a mile. In that space, it was humiliating. It was a reminder that you're not in control. It was a reminder that you're a a, a subjected people. It would infuriate you. You're in the middle of doing something for your labor, for your your job, for your family. And this person rips you out of that context and makes you walk one mile. And you got to walk another mile back, right? And this is hot, dirty, dusty roads. This is not a nature hike. This would have been costly to you. And what Jesus says, rather than walk the one mile and then drop the bag on his toe and tell him, fine, I did it. Do both sides of the equation, both be offended and then absorb that offense and go ahead and go with them a second mile because there's something about that that shows the kind of love of God that is extravagant to extend to sinners that begins to actually train and teach our hearts. So fourth illustration, he says, and give the one who begs from you and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. He says, when someone comes and asks, don't stop and calculate, could they pay me back just to give it to him because the equation is I will give this to you and then you'll give me back later then we'll be even and he says own both sides of that equation both pay the cost and then don't insist on being paid back and that actually brings peace what Jesus is calling his followers to do is to absorb the pain and cost of peace and then move towards the person all of these are costly they're dangerous They would be fatiguing. They would be humiliating. These are visceral moments. These are not things that happen online. These are not things that happen over email. These are things that happen in a real physical time that would actually cost you 
a ton. And Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, you have the ability to actually pay both sides of this retribution equation so that you could have peace. And it happens as you absorb the cost of the offense upon yourself. It's the only way to actually break the cycle of retribution, right? Because the way we score it is always weird. And it's never just a tooth for a tooth. It's always more than that. So Jesus says, stop asking to get paid back what you're owed. Instead, pay that person what you're owed through forgiveness and grace and reconciliation. That is a provocative, earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting orientation for our hearts. Nothing else tells you to do that, right? And we should stop here and go, man, there are times when it's with a narcissist or it's with an abuser or it's a really dangerous situation where, of course, love would not look like just continuing to do what they ask you to do, which is why this is pulled into the community, right? These are communal things, right? These lawsuits and this laws of retribution, something the community is weighing in on. It's not just a one-on-one situation, right? So you bring the community into it, but Jesus is saying, I want you to actually pay the price for peace in your relationships, and you do that through great cost to yourself as you absorb the cost and then you move towards the other person, right? So these aren't just like pay the price. They're, they're relational, right? To stand in that space after you've been insulted, to offer more than what they want from you, to, to go an extra space, to, to do more than they're asking in a way that would actually bless them. These are the things that God's people do because they match the nature and character of who God is. Now, there's a couple of things that have to be true just to make any sense at all. One is you have to trust God with your identity. If you're wrestling with other people or the culture or your boss or your wife or your parents or your friends to validate you and give you identity, this is way too threatening. Because in these moments, what you're saying is, I don't need to be validated. I won't seek retribution. I'll just stop here and pay you back. In that space, what has to be true is you have to believe that God actually owns your identity. You also have to believe that he is just and is a judge and he will make all things right. It's not just anarchy and chaos. This is not a passage that says we shouldn't have any government or any military. It's a relational passage, but you have to believe that God cares about the offenses, that he's going to make them right. So you will actually let him hold you in that space, protect your identity, and let you overextend yourself for the sake of peace with that person. And third, you actually have to deny yourself. It's part of what it means to let God hold your identity, but you have to actually stop defending, protecting, building yourself. Jesus says in Matthew 16, if you want to be my disciple, you have to die to yourself. That language is so pronounced and profound to say it's as if you don't exist anymore. He's not saying you don't have value, right? You have infinite value. So much value that, man, a woman and a child and a soldier, they're all protected, right? God values people. He's not saying you don't have value. What he's saying is you've stopped building your identity. You've actually died to building your identity, and you're trusting me to do that. You stop protecting and defending your stuff, and you're trusting me to do that. Remember, this is a kingdom ethic in the kingdom of God. It's good news, Jesus says. And you go, how on earth can that be good news to be taken advantage of like that? It's good news because it breaks that cycle of retribution, actually frees the person and yourself to move towards peace the same way when Jesus died for us, made it possible for us to be at peace with him. So, so we see like in the Psalms, this kind of language of I'm watching the wicked and they take advantage of me and I'm going to trust God to be my shield and my 
shelter. And Psalm 11 actually says, and I'm going to trust God to bring down coals of fire on this person. Paul picked that language up in Romans 12 and would tell us not to get even with people, not to actually seek our own vengeance, but actually through kindness, we actually have a chance to rain down coals of fire on their head. And so you go, oh, great. Now, so Christianity is this passive-aggressive religion who uses religious things to actually harm other people. And the answer to that is no. It's about God actually bringing about justice. And what's happening in that moment when you are taken advantage of, you're humiliated, you don't demand your rights, you stand before that person and expose the evil, you expose the need they have, you have a way of welcoming them into the same grace that you've received when you extend it to them. But there's an apologetic that happens where you witness to the goodness of God when you don't demand your own rights, but you trust God to take care of you. So like 1 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians 7, make application to marriage. If you're married with somebody who's hurting you, the, the biblical exhortation is to stay with them. Again, not in an abuse situation, let's get you safe, but there's a way to say in that spot that your faithful love, even to a person who is dangerous, communicates to them that there's hope for them, that your love is actually a small portrait in a mirror of the way God is able to love them. And again, all of these things are rooted and grounded in the reality of what Christ has done. So you're preaching the gospel when you own both sides of that equation. Because what did God do? We sinned against him, therefore deserved his wrath. The next part of the equation should be you pay for that. But what did he do instead? He took himself on the cross and he paid the penalty for all of your sin. That song, Jesus Paid It All, is a profound declaration to break this equation that God did for you to actually make a way for you to be in relationship. And the implications of that are huge, right? You don't have to pay him back. You can't actually pay that back. He just absorbs it and now you have peace. And that whole exchange radically changes you. Romans says that it's the kindness of God that leads us towards repentance. It's his, his sacrifice for us that actually transforms us from the inside out. And so when we do that to other people, they get a chance to be transformed and changed. Not because of our love for them, but because of the love that we're pointing to. So the question you have to ask is, how on earth is this good news? It's good news because you break this cycle. And when you absorb both sides of the equation and move towards the person who has hurt you, you actually are demonstrating the good news of the gospel because everything we read sounds familiar doesn't it to be struck on the cheek you think about jesus to actually have his clothes taken from him to be forced to carry his own cross to give to the ones who could never pay him back jesus doesn't just command this he embodies this he's faithful to these commands and because of what he's done by his death on the cross to free you he makes it possible by his spirit for you to actually then mirror this love to other people i know it's counterintuitive there's a million questions it's why we're taking three weeks on this really important topic but again for most of us our problem is not that we've over applied this our problem is that we've over nuanced it in such a way that you've said it doesn't actually mean that so you've never asked what does it mean You've never actually said, well, well, then what is he actually calling me to? You dismiss it so quickly, you never sit in the space where you say, what might God be asking me to do as I deny myself in these hard, painful relationships? I want to just give you a chance to think about that. And I want you to think about it as we take communion, right? Because you're not just thinking about how to be a good person. 
You're just thinking about what are the principles you should apply so you're better than somebody else. You're asking, how do you apply this sacrificial love of Jesus to this situation? So it's appropriate for you to make application in your heart while we take communion. Because communion is the place where Jesus embodied all of this. Where he cared for you, he brought about justice, he paid the price, and he made a way for you to actually be forgiven and free. Let that be the starting place for you to ask, what do I do with these people that have hurt me? What do I do with places where I've been humiliated? What do I do with places I've been insulted? What do I do with places that have really cost me relationally and emotionally and physically and spiritually? What do you do with this last year of of sleepless nights and the weight that you've lost because of the stress and anxiety, because of all the relational turmoil you've been in? What do you do with that? Well, you start by holding in your hand the images of what Christ did on the cross and you trust his sacrifice there as a way to make you whole. And from that place, ask, Lord Jesus, how do I apply this? So, So I want us just to do that. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to take communion. It's a declaration that Jesus paid it all. And it made it possible because he owned both sides of this retribution equation. If you're not a follower of Jesus, hear the good news that Jesus died in your place to forgive you of your sins so you could be forgiven and set free. He loves you. The scriptures say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He absorbed the penalty for your sin with joy, though it was agonizing and excruciating. The invitation is for you to trust him and love him and Give him your heart. Let him heal you. If that's where you're at, you're ready to trust him and take communion today and then let's talk about it afterwards. I'll be sitting right up here at the front. would love to talk with you about what it means to trust Jesus and how do you follow him the rest of your life. And for those of you who already are trusting Jesus, would you take a moment just to ask God, God, what do you want me to do with this? Before you quickly explain it away with all the reasons why it can't mean that, ask God, holding these reminders of what he's done for you, ask him about how do you want me to apply this? Because you know the places of pain that you feel. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion, and then we'll sing together. Jesus, thank you for the ways that you love us. I'm just struck in this moment, like you don't command anything of us that you weren't willing to do yourself, and you weren't just willing to do it like nobly. You actually made it possible. We thank you that when insulted, you didn't return insult. When when subjugated, you didn't actually return pain there. You let yourself be taken advantage of and abused in ways that actually brought about our life and our healing. It's by your stripes that we are healed. So we say thank you. Would you make us a people that that is near to our minds and our hearts so that when we feel offended, we can quickly apply that grace to our situations. I want to just pray God for protection over those whose shame and guilt and confusion right now are just ransacking their hearts and minds. Would you come Holy Spirit protect, comfort, be near to those in acute situations. And I pray the blood of Jesus will be applied to that in really profound spiritual ways. So help us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. you for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.